Good morning. Revelation 11. I'm going to start with verse 3 uh, today. Um, Daniel and I had a good time yesterday. We went down to Charlotte and uh, joined a lot of other Christians out in front of Planned Parenthood to protest the devilry that is Planned Parenthood. And I was really encouraged by the number of people out there. I think there was probably maybe a thousand people. And uh, then we went over to the Latrobe Clinic and stood there uh, uh, to be a presence. And several people complimented us on uh, the sign and the cross. I think Daniel had the best sign out there. America is wicked. And that pretty much sums it up. And then the cross had several people just expressed appreciation for that. And really the cross is what it's all about. That's the only answer for any problem, whether it be butchery and Planned Parenthood or lust in a man's heart. Crossed is the only solution. So I was just encouraged by the number of people out there as well as the number of people driving by that beeped in approval. And hopefully uh, the um, revelation of these videos will cause the abortion industry to suffer in this country and the number of abortions to go down. Uh, I was astounded to hear some statistics yesterday that since 2000, there was a chart that we saw about the number of abortions in North Carolina. They have drastically been reduced in the last few years, so that's a, that's a blessing. But the only thing that's going to fix these problems is Jesus setting up his kingdom. Politics isn't going to fix it, an election's not going to fix it, or protest isn't going to fix it. And so... Um, it really is about the gospel and all of these things without the gospel don't mean anything. And so, uh, but still it was a joy and, and a privilege to be down there. Daniel and I even got our photo on the headline of a national news article about yesterday's protest all over the country. There was the cross and Daniel and I standing right there. So I was, that was pretty neat. But uh, let's uh, again, let's turn to Revelation 11. I want to read verses 3 through 6 this morning. Remember, we're in a parenthesis here uh, that takes place between the sixth and seventh trumpet judgment in the chronology of Revelation. And the purpose of this parenthesis is to show God's testimony in the backdrop of these judgments, in the backdrop of these holocausts that are happening upon the earth. Okay, we've talked about the testimony of the mighty angel. We've just wrapped up the testimony of John, and now we're going to get into the testimony of two special witnesses, followed by the testimony of a great earthquake. The lesson to be learned here is even in the darkest of times, God gives testimony. There is always a light. In the beginning of Revelation in the church age, there was a sevenfold light, seven candlesticks that were testimonies in the world, the church. Those seven churches, types of churches that exist at all times in the church age, actual churches in John's day, and a prophetic picture of the church age. Seven candlesticks. And now what we're going to see is that seven have become two. But it's still about God's testimony. Whether it's seven or two, the light burns. Let Revelation 11 verse 3, And I, who is speaking here, it's the mighty angel of chapter 10, conversing with John, I will give power unto my two witnesses. This statement here proves, as far as I can see, or in my opinion, that the mighty angel is Jesus Christ, appearing on behalf of Israel, as He appeared in the Old Testament, the angel of the Lord. I will give power unto my two witnesses, and they shall prophesy a thousand, two hundred and threescore days, twelve hundred and sixty days, clothed in sackcloth, these are the two olive trees and the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. And if any man will hurt them, fire proceedeth out of their mouth and devoureth their enemies. And if any man will hurt them, he must in this manner be killed. These have power to shut heaven, that it rain not in the days of their prophecy, and have power over waters to turn them to blood and to smite the earth with all plagues as often as they will. So we have the testimony of two special witnesses, and in this, these three verses, 
we're told about the nature of their ministries. Notice Jesus says here, I will give power to my two witnesses. These are Christ's witnesses. He owns them. They speak for Him. They are His ambassadors. So when they defend themselves and fire comes out of their mouth to destroy their enemies, when they bring plagues upon the earth, plagues that will result in destruction and obviously the death of people, they do so on behalf of Christ. This is Christ's will. They are His witnesses. I think about a bumper sticker I used to have on the back of my RV as we traveled to and fro across the country preaching the gospel. Jesus Christ is coming back soon, and boy is He angry. It's the truth. My two witnesses, street preachers, preaching hellfire and brimstone, they speak on behalf of Christ. They are His witnesses. This brings to mind two passages of Scripture that apply to us. Daniel, if you look up Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and Jason, 2 Corinthians 5.20. What does Jesus say to His disciples and in effect to the church in Acts 1.8? One of five instances of the Great Commission in the New Testament. But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. Witnesses unto me is another way of saying you shall be my witnesses. It means the same thing. So we've been commissioned to be Christ's witnesses just like these two special witnesses. 2 Corinthians 5.20 Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. We are ambassadors for Christ. An ambassador speaks for the one who sends him. An ambassador bears witness to the one who has sent him. That's what we are to be in this world. You have no right as Christ's witness to bear testimony your way while neglecting the ways that God has ordained. I find it very interesting that Christ's two special witnesses aren't pastors of megachurches. They aren't dressed in kingly robes. They don't make big money and live in mansions. They are street preachers dressed in sackcloth. Woe unto Christians who would disdain the ministry of preaching in the streets. And there's a lot of them. Woe unto those who would say it's not effective. You're not doing it the right way. Well, we know based on this chapter here that street preaching is God's way. It is sanctioned by God. The Bible says in Corinthians that God has chosen the foolishness of preaching to save those that believe. So as Christ's witness and as His ambassador, it behooves us to use His methods. And preaching is undoubtedly one of those methods. Declaring truth in the streets is undoubtedly one of those methods. Doesn't mean there aren't others. But let's not be too quick to disdain something that God has obviously ordained. The next time you mock or look down upon a street preacher... Remember that in future days, that's what Christ chooses to be His primary light in the world after the church is taken out. And I know there's no one in here that disdains the street preacher, but this is to any Christian out there who may be listening when I post this message online. But we are to be Christ's witnesses, and if we are His witnesses, we will witness in ways that His Word says are effective, regardless if we think they're effective. And we will, we will witness His entire counsel and not conceal the truth and not weasel our ways out of it or not change the Gospel to be, make it more palatable. Jesus sent us via the Great Commission to be His witnesses just as these two will be sent 
to be His witnesses. Who knows where the word translated witness in the English Bible, who knows what Greek word that comes from? Anyone? It's the Greek word marturios. What other word in English do we get from that? Martyr. A witness. And many times being a witness for Christ with His words and in His ways results in one losing his life. And we'll see that here with these two witnesses later. But to lose one's body is just, just details where the Christian is concerned. Because we have eternal life and we should fear no, no one that can kill the body. Jesus said, fear not him which can kill the body but not the soul. Rather fear him who has power to cast both body and soul in hell. That's not Satan who has power to cast body and soul in hell. That's God. I will give power to my two witnesses. My friends, we are Christ's witnesses too. We've been sent into all the world. And as I preach about the tribulation, we are still here in the church age. And let us use these examples of future things to come to compel us to be what we've already been called to be. Christ's witnesses. In the military, you obey the orders you received until you receive new ones. The last order I got was to go and be Christ's witness. Let's do that. His witnesses, not our own. It says that these two will prophesy. Prophesy means to preach or proclaim. Okay, so preaching, proclamation is a method ordained by God. They're not going to sit in coffee houses and, or coffee shops in Jerusalem and have one-on-one -on -one conversations about the weather and about the, the times and about the economy and maybe, just maybe, mention the name of Jesus. They're not going to do those things. They're not going to have carnivals and programs to try to attract the lost to their little gathering there in Jerusalem. The Bible says they will prophesy. That means to preach or proclaim for how long? 1260 years. Days. How long is 1260 days? Three and a half years. Okay? Who else had a ministry of proclamation on this earth for approximately three and a half years? Jesus. I find it interesting that the ministry of these two special witnesses ordained by Christ will be the same length as Christ's earthly ministry. A three and a half year minute street preaching ministry primarily in Jerusalem. How do we know it's in Jerusalem? If you go down to verse 8, when they are martyred, it says that their bodies will lie in the streets of the great city which is called Sodom in Egypt where our Lord also was crucified. So we know that's Jerusalem. And we see later in verse 13 that following their rapture, there's a great earthquake in Jerusalem. That is the focal point of the judgment following their martyrdom. So it's obvious to me that these witnesses will have a street preaching ministry primarily in Jerusalem. At the same time that the 144,000 Jewish witnesses revealed in Revelation 7 are going throughout the world. This ministry will be in Jerusalem. And Jerusalem will be the focal point, the flashpoint of the end times. And that's not too hard to conceive considering the situation in Jerusalem even today. It says they will be clothed in sackcloth. Sackcloth was a coarse black cloth made from goat's hair. And it was worn together sometimes with burnt ashes of wood as a sign of doom. These are prophets of doom sent by Christ. In the Old Testament, and even in the New Testament, we can see sackcloth was worn for several reasons. It was worn to mourn for the dead. We see in Genesis chapter 37 that Jacob clothes himself in sackcloth and rends his clothes to mourn for what he thinks is the death of Joseph when his sons come back and show him the colored coat with the blood on it. And of course we know that was a ruse. Joseph was sold into slavery. We see David adorning sackcloth to mourn for the death of Abner, 
Saul's general who was murdered by Joab. Sackcloth was worn in the Old Testament in times of personal or national disaster. Okay, In Esther, when Haman's plot was discovered to destroy the Jews and to rid the world of their race, Mordecai adorned sackcloth to mourn sackcloth and ashes. In Lamentations, the daughters of Jerusalem clothed themselves in sackcloth to mourn the destruction of the city and the carrying away of the Jews into captivity in Babylon. And in the prophet Joel, sackcloth was adorned to mourn for the land that had suffered the judgments of God through a locust plague. Sackcloth was also a sign of repentance. In 1 Chronicles 21, David adorned himself in sackcloth to repent of his sin of numbering the people. It was a sign of repentance. And God stayed the judgment there at the threshing floor. And that threshing floor became the place or the property upon which the temple would stand. In Nehemiah, the people adorned sackcloth in the city to repent of their sins. The sins of the people, the sins of the nation. Jonah, who adorned sackcloth as a sign of repentance at the preaching of Jonah. The king of Nineveh. The people of Nineveh. Even the animals. They put sackcloth upon them as a sign of repentance. Look up Matthew 11.21 for a moment. Jesus says, Woe unto thee, Chorazin! Chorazin was an important village in the Galilee in Jesus' day. It's just rubble and ruin now. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida! An important village, fishing village in Galilee in the day of Jesus. It's just ruins overgrown by foliage now. I've stood in these places. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Even Jesus shows sackcloth to be a sign of repentance. Woe unto thee, America. Woe unto thee, Western civilization. For if the things which have been done in you had been done in the midst of the heathen at the uttermost part of the earth, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. Sackcloth was also used in times of prayer or intercession, pleading with God for deliverance. In 2 Kings 19, when the Assyrians were threatening Jerusalem, and Hezekiah the king received that letter, he was in fear. And he cried out to God for deliverance from the Assyrian host by spreading that letter before the Lord and adorning himself in sackcloth. In the book of Daniel, Daniel was praying for his people and confessing the sins of the people and making intercession for the nation and asking God to deliver them from their captivities. It was reaching the end of the 70 years that Jeremiah had prophesied. And Daniel was adorned in sackcloth. God came to him and gave him one of the most important prophecies in all of Scripture in response to his prayer of intercession. What was that prophecy? Anybody remember? The 70 weeks. So sackcloth was used to mourn for the dead in times of personal or national disaster, a sign of repentance or calling people to repentance, and in times of prayer for deliverance. Just the simple statement here that they would be Christ witnesses clothed in sackcloth says a lot, in my opinion, about the nature of their preaching. These street preachers won't be ranting and raving and stirring up crowds and trying to provoke people unto a reaction. The nature of their preaching will be mourning for the dead and over Jerusalem, calling attention 
to national and worldwide disaster that befalls this planet in the days of tribulation. Warning people in the face of these disasters. Calling Israel to repentance and to recognize their Messiah. Prayer for calling upon Messiah for deliverance and judgment. Intercession. This is the nature of their preaching. Prophets of doom. I'm reminded again of Amos chapter 3, verse 7, and we won't turn there because I've mentioned it many times. God never dispenses judgment without first giving warning. All of the things that have happened prior to the arrival of these witnesses, the judgments, have been warned about. They've been warned about in the book of Revelation for 2,000 years. They've been warned about by faithful prophets and preachers that have gone out through the church age to declare the gospel to the ends of the earth. They will be warned about in the times of tribulation by 144,000 Jewish witnesses. And when these special witnesses arise, they too will warn of these things and of things that are yet to come, even worse than what has transpired already. You see, we've already had we're already in six trump, uh, six seal judgments. The seventh seal is, or seven seal judgments. The seventh seal is the seven trumpets. This parenthesis pops up between the sixth and the seventh trumpet judgment. So we're in the we're all the way into the sixth trumpet judgment. But we hadn't had the seventh trumpet judgment. The seventh trumpet is the seven vials of God's wrath. So what's coming is even worse. And God still sends warning because He's a God. Of mercy. These prophets, in their proclamation of doom, in their preaching and intercession, will display true love. True love for the world in a time of rebellion that the world will only choose to see as torment. Look at Revelation chapter 11, verse 10. This is, we're going to talk about this later. But once these men are allowed to die at the hands of Antichrist under the sovereign hand of God, it'll be like Christmas time around the world. And they that dwell upon the earth shall rejoice over them, rejoice over their dead bodies, and make merry, and they shall send gifts one to another, because these two prophets tormented them that dwelt upon the earth. You see, true love will be viewed as torment. And the people of this earth will rejoice in their death. Truth is only torment to those tormented by the truth. Truth is only hate to those that hate the truth. Period. I, can't, I, I don't have enough... I can't even recall how many times as I've preached the gospel on the streets that I've been accused of hate. And it, 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 it's even happened in times when I'm in the middle of talking about nothing but the cross. I haven't even mentioned the sins of the land. Pleading with people to be saved in Jesus Christ and I'm still called a preacher of hate. Many of you have experienced that as well. To take a stand on issues that are in the forefront. To take a stand. The three biggest statements of hate speech today, Islam is idolatry, homosexuality is a sin, and abortion is murder. That makes you a hate monger. But the truth is only hate to those that hate the truth. The truth is only torment to those tormented by the truth. So we understand a little bit about the nature of this preaching based upon what they choose to wear and based upon what is said about them at their death. I call that true love. True love bids a warning doom to those that play in the freeway. And the people of the earth and the people of Israel at this time are playing in the freeway. And it's true love that will warn them. I want to take a moment and turn back to the Old Testament. Amos chapter 7. There's an interesting little chapter here that talks about some of Amos's interactions as he attempts to fulfill what God has called him to do, prophesying to the northern kingdom of Israel. And in this interaction, we see what I believe is the hallmark of a true prophet. 
in what I believe will be hallmarks also of these two special witnesses. If I can find it here in my Bible. Turn to Amos chapter 7. Very interesting chapter. We're going to just read this chapter. Okay? Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me. This is Amos the prophet speaking. And behold, he formed grasshoppers in the beginning of the shooting up of the latter growth. This was a time in which the, uh, the seasons brought forth the growth of vegetation. It was important in times, terms of harvest. And lo, it was the latter growth after the king's mowings. So it was in a time where even the grass had to be mowed. A typically fruitful time. And it came to pass that when they, these grasshoppers, had made an end of eating the grass of the land, that I said, O Lord God, forgive, I beseech thee. By whom shall Jacob arise? For he is small. So here we have the prophet making intercession for the people. The Lord repented for this, it shall not be, saith the Lord. He didn't change his mind, he changed his way. God doesn't change his mind about things. Sometimes he changes his way, but not his mind. Do you understand the difference? God was going to bring judgment on Israel. He just changed his way. There was going to be a plague of grasshoppers. But Amos intercessed for the people. Thus hath the Lord God showed unto me, and behold, the Lord God called to contend by fire, and it devoured the great deep, and did eat up a part. Then said I, O Lord God, cease, I beseech thee, by whom shall Jacob arise, for he is small? The Lord repented for this. This also shall not be, saith the Lord God. He didn't change his mind, he changed his way. Then he showed me, and behold, the Lord stood upon a wall made by a plumb line, with his own plumb line in his hand. And the Lord said unto me, Amos, what seest thou? And I said, a plumb line. We've talked about this scripture. Then said the Lord, Behold, I will set a plumb line in the midst of my people Israel. I will not again pass by them any more. And the high places of Isaac shall be desolate, and the sanctuaries of Israel shall be laid waste, and I will rise against the house of Jeroboam with the sword." What is the plumb line that determines right and wrong in our life and throughout all eternity? The Word of God. The Word of God. That is the plumb line. It doesn't matter if our churches are built with a plumb line. God holds a plumb line that tells whether they're straight. Now, verse 10. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel, this was one of those apostate priests that were ordained to minister at the site of one of the golden calves erected by the first Jeroboam, king of Israel. This is in the day of Jeroboam II uh, in the uh, um, dynasty of Jehu, a very prosperous time in northern Israel or in the, kingdom of, the northern kingdom of Israel when there was prosperity and it seemed like judgment was afar off. Then Amaziah the priest of Bethel sent to Jeroboam king of Israel, saying, Amos has conspired against thee in the midst of the house of Israel. The land is not able to bear all his words. O king, this man's a preacher of hate. We can't take it anymore. For thus Amos saith, Jeroboam shall die by the sword, and Israel shall surely be led away captive out of their own land. And Amaziah said unto Amos, O thou seer, go, flee away into the land of Judah, and there eat your bread and prophesy there. But prophesy not again any more at Bethel, for it is the king's chapel, and it is the king's court. Don't be preaching here anymore, that hate speech. Go back to your own place. This filthy, wicked priest leveling these accusations had no clue that the very prophet he accused of hate was making intercession for the people with compassion. Then answered Amos and said unto Amaziah, I was no prophet, neither was I a prophet's son, but I was a herdman and a gatherer of sycamore fruit. And the Lord took me as I followed the flock. And the Lord said unto me, Go, prophesy unto the people Israel. Now therefore, hear thou the word of the Lord. Thou sayest, Prophesy not against Israel, and drop not thy word against the house of Isaac. Therefore thus saith the Lord, Thy wife shall be a harlot in the city, 
And thy sons and thy daughters shall fall by the sword. And the land shall be divided by line, and thou shalt die in a polluted land. And Israel shall surely go into captivity forth of his land. So here we have the prophet accused of saying that Israel would go into captivity. And he's accused of this. Does Amos change his message? Does Amos back away from his words and spin them a different direction? No, he stands by his words. Israel will go into captivity. I find this an interesting chapter. It shows us a prophet's compassion and intercession on behalf of the people God had sent him to preach against. This is the hallmark of a true prophet. One who truly desires to see the people to which he warns concerning God's judgment to repent. Jonah didn't have this hallmark. That was Jonah's problem. Not only did he not want to go to Nineveh because he was afraid, he didn't want to see the people of Nineveh repent. He wanted to see God's judgment fall upon them. And when they did repent, he sat outside the city and pouted. And then God used an interesting uh, object lesson to show him that this was God's property. There's a whole bunch of people in Nineveh that can't even tell the difference between their right and left. They can't even tell the difference between right and wrong, small children. And then there's all these cattle that you didn't make. And you're upset because I choose to spare them. Jonah lacked this hallmark of a true prophet. All of us that have preached on the street at times have lacked this true hallmark. But we must embrace it. Intercession on behalf of those we preach to. Intercession on behalf of those that mock us. Compassion. Asking God to have mercy. That the Lord perhaps might change His way. But we know He'll never change His mind. Maybe the Lord will delay His judgment upon this country and change His way as we intercess for her. He won't change His mind. Judgment is coming. But maybe God will be merciful and give us more time to preach the Gospel. Israel shall surely go into captivity. Amos stood by his words. He had compassion. He made intercession for the people, but he was not weak. He prophesied exactly what God told him to say. And when he was threatened because of those words, he didn't change. He stood by him. He didn't make an apology. I really believe that in these days, that is what people want. They want those that have conviction that will say something and not apologize for it. What's the proof of that? Just look at the political landscape today. Who is it that's popular? The one who says something and doesn't apologize for it. Doesn't mean that what he says is right. Doesn't mean that he's necessarily a moral man or a great man of integrity. But he says something and he doesn't back away. And look at the response. Despite all these attempts to make him go away, Mr. Trump is still there. He speaks something and he doesn't retract it. Now, if that's the type of response we see in society from the average people, what makes us think that the preacher should do the opposite? What if there were preachers that would speak God's Word and when they're threatened with it, or when the Freedom From Religion organization calls the public servant from Wisconsin and tells them to stop doing something, what would the response be if the, the, uh, the person that received the letter or heard the phone call told them to shove it? I'm praying with this team and I don't care what you say. The First Amendment of the Constitution gives me the freedom to exercise my religion and it's Congress that has no power to make a law to prohibit the free exercise thereof. Congress has nothing to do with the judicial system or with an organization or with a local institution. Congress shall make no law. You have no right to restrict me from praying with my team. I'll pray with them. If you don't like it, you can lump it. What would the response be if people would take that stand? I was so ashamed of this woman that initially stood up to a threat 
She refused to issue license to homosexuals. She was a clerk of court. I can't remember where it was. And then she got the threats. It was in Texas. And then she backed away and started issuing them anyway. Why even take a stand in the first place if you're going to back away? Why even say something if you're going to back away from it? If a political leader can exist that holds to values or at least claims to believe things that are not supposed to be popular in our society, yet his popularity soars because he says things and won't back away. What if preachers would be like that? What if Christians would be like that and just speak the truth and not back away? And not be intimidated by the threats? Maybe we would see such a response. Maybe we would see revival. But there's no revival in this land because we're weak. Not a true prophet. Amos the prophet didn't back away. These preachers, these street preachers, these witnesses that will come and give testimony for 1260 days will not back away from their words. What they say, they will stand by them. And that is an example for us. Some say that to do so, to speak hard truth, to not waver, to have convictions is not loving But it's God that defines love, not the world. And if the love you have is defined by the world, you have no love at all and it will be nothing on the day of judgment. God defines love. What does He say about love? Turn to Romans chapter 12, verse 9. God defines love through Paul the Apostle, who wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Paul said, if you uh, um, uh, let, 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 a, let a righteous man acknowledge that the things I tell you, he said to the Corinthians, are the things that the Lord says. Period. If you think you're spiritual, then you need to understand that what I'm writing you is from the hand of God. He wrote by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's amazing to me how many people today despise Paul the Apostle. And they want to lift up other parts of Scripture. You know, sometimes... You know, people, you know, they want to talk about the Sermon on the Mount as if it's got more authority than the rest of the New Testament. No, my friends. The writings of Paul are just as authoritative as the red letters in the Gospels because it was given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And if you fail to improperly interpret the Gospels in view of the epistles written by Paul and given to the church, then you, are, you do err not knowing the Scriptures. But God defines love here. Let love be without dissimulation. What is dissimulation? Concealing facts. Concealing what you know to be true. Love is to be without that. So if you know by the testimony of the Word of God that homosexuality is abomination, you don't love your homosexual friend when you conceal that truth from them. You may think you do, But who you really love is yourself. You love yourself. You're more concerned about having friends than about being a friend. Let your love be without dissimulation. And then we have it defined here. Abhor. That's a lot stronger word than despise. Abhor that which is evil. Cleave to that which is good. If you're a friend and you love your friend that's living in sin, love abhors the sin they live in and warns them against it. Makes intercession against it. Has the compassion of Amos, but yet the steadfastness to speak the truth and not retract. That is biblical love. And true love bids a warning doom to children that play in the freeway. God defines love, not us. And this example here in the book of Amos, I think, mirrors the hallmark of a true prophet. It mirrors the ministry of these two special witnesses, and it should should mirror our ministry, especially those of us accustomed to evangelism and going to the streets. I'm ranting and raving. These two special witnesses won't rant and rave. 
They will prophesy a thousand two hundred and threescore days clothed in sackcloth. Now we know this is approximately three and a half years if you take a thirty-day month. Now, back in verse two, we have this same period of time spoken about in terms of months. Here it's spoken of in terms of days. Why would there be two different uh, means of counting or reckoning used? I believe it's because we're not talking necessarily about the same period of three and a half years. I want to draw a little map here, and I've already talked about it somewhat. But the tribulation, Daniel's 70th week, is seven years. It includes two periods of 42 months. Two periods of 42 months or 3.5 years. Divided in two. Daniel calls it the midst of the week. What happens in the midst of the week? What's the dividing point for this seven years of tribulation? What great event? The abomination of desolation. Antichrist desecrates the temple and he sets himself up as God betraying the Jews with whom he has signed a treaty. He breaks the treaty. That's what happens in the midpoint of the tribulation. And from that point, the Bible says that the temple will be trodden underfoot of the Gentiles for 42 months. That's what's been talked what, that's what's talked about there in the beginning of chapter 11. 42 months, the temple will be trodden underfoot. From the period of the point of the abomination of desolation until Jesus returns, the temple will be trodden underfoot. The temple that the Temple Institute is pushing to have built now is not a temple for Yeshua HaMashiach. It's a temple of Antichrist. It will be desecrated. Okay? So what did Jesus call this last 42-month period? The whole thing is called the tribulation. How did Jesus describe the last half of it? The what? The what tribulation? Y'all got to speak louder when you say it. I heard the right answer, but it's so... The great tribulation. Good. 42 months. Now we're told here that these witnesses have a ministry that lasts 1260 days which is also three and a half years. I believe the reason this is reckoned in days, whereas the last half of the tribulation is reckoned in months in 11 verse 2, is because we're not talking about the exact same period of time. We know, as we'll get to the latter end of chapter 11, that the ministry of this witnesses coincides with the end of the sixth trumpet. The sixth trumpet is the second woe. It began when there was an unleashing. Back in chapter 9, uh, of an army of fallen angels that would wreak havoc upon the earth and many would die. That was the blowing of the sixth trumpet. That also coincides with the end of the ministry of these two witnesses. Now, the sixth trumpet isn't the end of the tribulation. We still have the seventh trumpet. And the seventh trumpet is seven vials of wrath. And then Armageddon. Now I think those things will happen very quickly. But this ministry overlaps in some fashion these two halves of the tribulation. Okay? And it ends with the end of the sixth trumpet or the second woe. So the reason why these two periods are reckoned differently, even though it's the same length of time, is because it's not talking about the same period. A lot of people teach that the ministry of the two witnesses is the, is, is, coincides with the last half of the tribulation. It starts when Antichrist desecrates the temple and it ends with the coming of Christ. I don't believe that. It, in fact, it doesn't reconcile with the end of chapter 11. So these prophets will arise prior to Antichrist's betrayal, and they will be warning the people of Jerusalem not to trust this false Messiah. And people will hate them. And then it will be revealed that what they said is true. And people will still hate them. And that ministry will overlap. And the beast 
is the one that is allowed to kill them. The beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, it means that they're killed after he's been revealed for who he truly is. So we have an overlapping period of time. Somewhere around this time, or in the first half of the tribulation, we don't know exactly when, but we have the sealing of the 144,000, which are Jewish witnesses who will go to the earth and reap a great Gentile harvest of tribulation saints. So these things overlap, excuse me, the two halves of the tribulation. So that gives you an idea of where this is in this parenthesis. Okay? Let's look at verse 4. Here we have an ID badge. We've told, we're, we're told a little bit about the nature of their ministry based on what they wear, how long they prophesy, who they are and who sent them. Now we're given a specific ID badge that tells us exactly who these are. Verse 4, These are the two olive trees. And, that word and is very important. I'll explain later. And the two candlesticks standing before the God of the earth. Now what in the world does that mean? And how is that an ID badge? You don't see any names there. But it's very clear if you understand Old Testament prophecy. Once again, the Old Testament is being alluded to in the New Testament. And you can't properly understand what the New Testament is saying unless you go back and study the Old Testament that's being referenced. So anybody that tells you the Old Testament's been replaced by the New Testament is foolish. And anybody that sees no value in, preaching the, in teaching the Old Testament is not modeling their ministry after Jesus Christ and the Apostles. Every sermon preached in the New Testament had the Old Testament as its text. So let's turn. We're going to spend a little time maybe into next week in the prophet Zechariah. So turn to the prophet Zechariah because this is where the prophet has a vision about two olive trees. And those two olive trees had a type, an initial fulfillment in his day, two specific individuals, but they also have an antitype, an ultimate fulfillment, as is revealed here in Revelation 11. That's the nature of Old Testament prophecy. Shadow fulfillment, ultimate fulfillment. Type, antitype. And again, we have an example of this. This is in Zechariah 4, but I want to set the stage. Context is very important. In the first six chapters of Zechariah, the prophet has ten visions. And these ten visions shed light on the messianic hope. On the hope of Messiah that will eventually come and fulfill all the promises made to Israel. In light of messianic hope, Zechariah has ten visions. And this vision of the olive trees and the candlestick is one of those ten visions. It doesn't exist alone. It's a part of a greater picture. And a lot of these things are fulfilled in the period of the time of Revelation. The first 17 verses of chapter 1 is the first vision. The prophet sees a rider on a red horse sitting in the bottom amongst the myrtle trees. What we see here is intercession for a dispersed and troubled Jerusalem while the rest of the world is at rest. God doesn't forget Jerusalem when it's a flashpoint and the rest of the nations are at rest. Look at verses 14 and 15. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. That hasn't changed, my friends. When it says Jerusalem and Zion here in Zechariah, it's not talking about the church. It's talking about Zion and Jerusalem. That hasn't changed. And I am very sore displeased with the heathen that are at ease. At ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. So God says, I am jealous for Jerusalem, and I'm very displeased with the Gentile nations that are at ease. You see, I was displeased with my people, and I brought judgment upon him, but you forwarded that affliction and made it worse. God is angry with the nations at ease that have forwarded the affliction of His people. 
God intended to judge them. But woe unto those who forwarded that affliction and judgment. Okay, Jesus said something very similar concerning Judas. He said that what Judas was going to do had to be done for it was written. The Son of Man must be betrayed into hands of sinners, but woe unto him by whom he is betrayed. It were better for him that he had never been born. It must be that Israel should be judged, but woe unto those nations that forwarded the judgment. The prophet Habakkuk talks about that a bit. He's discouraged that God would allow Babylon, a wicked people, to judge his people, Israel. And God says, don't worry about that. Babylon will get theirs. Intercession for Jerusalem. We live in a time when there are nations like America that are largely at ease, while Israel is in a state of chaos and torment, and trouble, hatred, judgment. And we, our government, forwards that affliction by not recognizing Jerusalem as the capital, as George W. Bush promised he would do and he never did, by perpetrating this lie concerning Palestine and the Palestinian people, by pushing for a two-state solution that would never work, by restraining Israel and not allowing them to defend themselves against threats to wipe them off the planet. Woe unto us. God's displeased. And His judgment is coming. We get into the latter part of chapter 1. The prophet has another vision, this time of four horns. Those four horns represent the four Gentile kingdoms that have done the very thing God is displeased with in the first vision. The four Gentile kingdoms that have scattered Israel around the world. Who are those four Gentile kingdoms? They were prophesied to Daniel. Four and only four since that prophecy. What was the first one? Babylon? Who came after Babylon? The Persians. Modern day Iran. Who's next? The Greeks. And what was the great terrible beast? Rome. Has the Roman Empire ceased to exist? No. The Roman Empire exists. The great nation states of Europe and the United States by way of a transplanted European population, that is the Roman Empire. The concept of nationhood in Europe arose out of Rome. France, Great Britain, Germany... Spain, the nation-states of Western Europe, and the United States by virtue of the fact that Western Europe was transplanted to these shores. We are Rome. Not the great iron legs, but the iron mixed with miry clay. Weak. But yet, in us, in our genes, Rome remains. In our government, Rome remains. In our society, Rome remains. And in the degradation we see today, we see the fall of the Roman Empire. These are the four kingdoms that would arise and scatter Israel. And everything that Daniel saw and prophesied has come to pass. But these uh, four horns represent those four Gentile kingdoms. In verses 20 and 21, the third vision is of four carpenters that have come to fray and cast out these Gentile kingdoms. You see, these Gentile kingdoms of which the United States is a part will be frayed and cut off. Four carpenters. What are God's four judgments against the nations? We talked about this. It's in Ezekiel 14.21, God's four sword judgments. The sword, famine, the noisome beast, and the pestilence. There's a subtle reference there also to the four horses, not the four horsemen, the four horses of the apocalypse. These things will be judgment against those kingdoms that have scattered Israel. In chapter 2, we have the fourth vision. It's a man with a measuring line who goes forth to measure Jerusalem for kingdom blessing. We've already talked about that. The act of measuring in the Scriptures is God taking spiritual inventory of His property and evaluating the spiritual condition of His people. Something He has a right to do. Look at chapter 2, verse 13. 
Be silent, O all flesh, before the Lord, for He is raised up out of His holy habitation. You know, all the nations of the earth can come against Israel. All the peoples of the earth can hate the Jew and desire to eradicate him from the earth. But it won't happen because the Lord will raise up out of His holy habitation and He will fight for Israel. Just like He did on the shores of the Red Sea when Pharaoh and his armies pursued the children fleeing into the wilderness. Chapter 5, I mean the fifth vision is chapter 3. Joshua the high priest. We need to read this because it has direct bearing on the vision of the olive trees and the, and the candlestick and therefore direct bearing on what we're studying here in Revelation 11. Let's look at Zechariah chapter 3. Um, Bob, would you read the first seven verses? This is the fifth of Zechariah's ten visions. Okay, here we have a vision of Joshua the high priest. In the days of the prophet Zechariah, we are in post-Babylonian exile Jerusalem. We are in the days of Ezra, Nehemiah, you know, the events of Esther. This is the time period we're in. And Zerubbabel was the governor that brought the people, led the people back to Jerusalem. He is in the line of Jesus Christ, in the kingly line. Joshua was the high priest at that time. So you had two leaders of the people in that day. Zerubbabel, the civil governor, and Joshua, the high priest. And we see here in this vision that Satan was standing to resist this man. Satan did not want that second temple rebuilt. And he tried to stop it. He didn't want Jerusalem rebuilt. And he tried to stop it. We see that in the book of Nehemiah. These things are very important and it's important to understand why he wanted to stop it. The second temple was very important. And once the second temple was built, Satan knew he was in trouble because he knew what would come to that second temple. And if it came to the second temple, it would surely come and destroy him. We'll talk about that later. But it's interesting to see here this vision. It plays directly into the two candlesticks. Because when we get into chapter 4, we have another person mentioned by name. It's Zerubbabel. But yet the vision is of a candlestick and two olive trees. So these two olive trees represent two people. In that context, reading chapter 3 shows us that the two people are Zerubbabel and Joshua. Okay, But look at what it says. It says, Joshua was standing before the angel of the Lord, which is Christ, and Satan stood at Joshua's hand to resist him. This is a picture of the accuser of the brethren. This is what Satan does. This is what Satan will attempt to do at the judgment seat of Christ when believers answer according to their works for reward. Satan, the one who doesn't have the wedding garments, will stand there and accuse the brethren. But Christ will enter in and make intercession and declaration just like He does here for Joshua. And Satan will be kicked out of heaven. We'll see that in Revelation chapter 12. But look 
Satan stood at his right hand to resist Joshua. Turn to Revelation 12.10. Satan's tactics are the same. Nothing new under the sun. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now has come salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of His Christ. For the accuser of our brethren is cast down, which accused them before our God day and night. In this dispensation of grace, in this church age, that's what Satan does. Accuses us, just like he accused Job, just like he accuses Joshua. But we have Christ, the angel of the Lord, to stand on our behalf. What happens here in verse 2? What does the Lord say to Satan? The Lord says, The Lord rebuke thee, O Satan. Even the Lord that has chosen Jerusalem rebuke thee. Turn to Jude, verse 9. God is consistent. His angels are consistent. We ought to be consistent. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked thee. That's the best response to Satan. It's a response not only used by Michael the archangel, but used by the, the second person of the Trinity himself against Satan. The Lord rebuked thee. Now this passage here in Jude, I believe, plays into these two special witnesses. It sheds light on who they will be. There was obviously a special purpose here for the body of Moses. We don't know why, but Satan wanted it for some reason. I believe it has to do with Revelation 11. We'll talk about that later. Look at verses 3 through 5, and I'm going to end with this today because I think we have here a beautiful picture or a beautiful illustration of biblical salvation. Joshua was clothed in filthy garments and he stood before the angel dirty, filthy, and unworthy. Satan accused him. But what did the Lord do? The Lord said, take away the filthy garments. I have chosen or I have caused your iniquity to pass from you and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. And then Joshua was given a new set of clothes. That's a beautiful illustration of salvation. We, no matter how moral we are, or how good we think we are, at best, can only stand before the righteous God of the earth in filthy garments. But the Bible says if we'll humble ourselves, acknowledge our sin, and look to Jesus Christ, who's standing here with Joshua, that He'll give us a new heart. He'll give us a change of garments. That which is crimson will be white as snow. A beautiful picture of salvation. A change of clothing. Not that we buy for ourselves or we get for ourselves and change for ourselves, but a change of garments given to us by the One who earned the right to do it. And that is Jesus the Christ, the angel of the Lord. Turn to Philippians 3. I'm reminded of Paul's testimony and description of salvation. It alludes back to this interaction with Joshua and the angel of the Lord. Philippians 3, 7-9. through 9. Paul is speaking, But those things which were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung that I may win Christ. And being found in Him, not having mine own righteousness, not having my own garments, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith. Not having my own garments, but those given to me by Christ. Not having my own righteousness, but the righteousness which is of faith. That is the stumbling block for the world. That's the stumbling block for the Jew. It's the stumbling block for the Gentile. But to us that have been saved, to us that have been given garments, new garments as we stood there filthy, just like Joshua the high priest, it's the power of God unto salvation. Praise God. I'm going to end there today. This is my two witnesses and the visions of Zechariah, part one. Next week we'll 
continue, part 2. Go ahead and continue reading and study Zechariah chapter 4. And if you want to continue, you can go through all ten of those visions. It's the first six chapters. And next week we'll talk more, particularly in chapter 4. And it's going to be interesting to learn why Satan was so opposed to the construction of the second temple. It ties directly to why Satan is so opposed to the temple in Revelation. Why he's so opposed to Israel existing in the time of tribulation. Why he's so opposed to these two special witnesses. It all goes together. And we're also going to learn about the day of small things. Who is it that despises a day of small things when seemingly insignificant things happen? You think your life is boring and your role or your ministry is boring and you despise despise the little things. But we're going to see that the little things in Zechariah's day actually were very significant. We shouldn't despise the day of small things. And then we're going to start talking about who are these two special witnesses? Who are they? We get some clues. Some very interesting clues. And we will interpret Scripture with Scripture as we always should do, looking at the entire context. So, I told you, we, I've told you before, we've actually taken this study on Revelation and we've touched in every single uh, verse, I mean, every single book of the Bible we've referred to. And most of them, multiple times. To this point, the only one we haven't referenced is the Song of Solomon. But there's a key cross-reference in Revelation 19. We'll get there. So by the time we're finished this study, we've gone to every single book of the Bible because it's all the Word of God and it all goes together and we can't interpret a part without the whole. So I pray I've done this faithfully and I pray you've, the Spirit's given you understanding and uh, we'll just continue this journey with joy.